Director's Commentary, The Sheridan Monkhouse Collection. I've never sought recognition or awards for my work. Personally, I've always found it enough that it's been globally popular amongst audiences. But there was one picture I felt was overly overlooked by the Academy. Hi, I'm Sheridan Monkhouse. In 2009, I made Snowflake, the story of a successful woman overcoming a devastating bout of swimmer's ear. This is the commentary track to the new 4K remaster of that picture, or, alternatively, it's the podcast highlights of that commentary track that I've made available for free. The studio was against it. It could lower sales of the physical product, but sometimes you've got to make a stand. So, you're welcome. It's a harrowing experience. I make no apologies for that. So I have certainly got a large glass of outstanding malt with me. I suggest you do the same. And let's together enjoy Snowflake. Many people were surprised when I decided to make a film about someone having swimmer's ear, and I certainly wasn't convinced. But I wanted to tell the story of a person bravely overcoming illness, and frankly, finding a good illness for a movie that hadn't been done isn't easy. AIDS, cancer, whatever my left foot had, they'd all been taken. Ultimately, it came down to swimmer's ear or necrotizing fasciitis. We actually kicked around necrotizing fasciitis as an idea for a while, and Julia Roberts was briefly on board to play a crusading local politician with a hole in her face. But she decided to do Eat, Pray, Love instead. I'll let you be the judge of how that choice worked out for her. I settled on Otitis Externa, or Swimmer's Ear as it's better known. Why? Good question. Well, firstly, no one has ever made a film about having swimmer's ear before. I know, astonishing. Up to 10% of the population will face it in their lifetimes. Yet cinema has never tried to tackle it. Secondly, although the main symptoms are slight pain and redness for a few days, acute cases can see balance issues and a discharge from the ear. That's when I realised we were onto something. You see, if you're just a normal person in an office and you get a pain in your ear, you might pop home early and have a lie down. But what if you're a supermodel? And what if, during the biggest show of your career, you fall over and weird pus starts coming out of your ear? It was that thought, that moment, that shock, that drama, and that mild discomfort which convinced me that a swimmer's ear picture could be incredibly powerful. Lovely title sequence, very understated. Why is the picture called Snowflake? Well, in many ways, I suppose a snowflake is a metaphor, isn't it? For many things, which is why it's a title that resonates with many people on many different levels, and as such was such a perfect fit for this story. We open straight on Jemima Peake's top supermodel, or more specifically, we open deep in her head. It's an outstanding virtuoso statement shot. As far as I'm aware... No other picture has opened deep inside the ear canal of the lead actress. It's an incredible moment as we pull out of Jemima's ear slowly. Look, you can just see, just there, a little bit of red on her inner ear canal. That's the start of everything. Then we pull out and it becomes clear that this is a person, then further, and it's a beautiful woman. Further, and we see her surrounded by other beautiful women and handsome men laughing and enjoying themselves. Further still, we see it's a glamorous party. From inside her head to glamorous party while the titles play. It's audacious stuff, but I make no apology for that. Before I go on, I've got to pay tribute here to Clementine Wishbourne. 
one of the most extraordinary actresses I've ever worked with. This is her actual ear here. Many actresses would want an ear stand-in for this sort of invasive, deeply personal shot, but such was her commitment to the role that she insisted it was her own ear canal on screen throughout. Incredible, really, but that was Clem. Initially, we were expecting some big names for this role. It was demanding, it was high-profile, there was a lot of pus and crying. So I thought that we'd get a Scarlet, an Eva, or even an Angelina, but I don't know. Perhaps they simply didn't have the confidence to take on the portrayal of Swimmer's ear. It's not easy, and certainly I don't blame them for it. Ultimately, though, their loss was my gain, because I found Clementine Wishbourne. Clem was probably best known for her work on Flames of Passion, a high-concept TV show that combined explicit sex scenes with morality tales about fire safety, all set around the folk working in and around a Midwestern firehouse. It was pretty good, but the decision to make every episode about a major fire in one of the town buildings did limit its scope somewhat. Clem had a recurring role as a sexy lawyer who had an affair with lead firefighter Blaze Sadler. If I'm honest, she was doing solid but unspectacular work, until the episode where she was trapped on the bandstand as it burnt down and sustained a really nasty burn on her ankle. She was incredible. I genuinely believe that her ankle was really quite painful. So Clem was on my radar, and after Jessica Alba didn't return my call, I thought, why not? And I asked Clem to come in. It was literally one of the most outstanding decisions I've ever made. She just walked into the room and everyone fell in love with her. And when she started auditioning, well, my goodness, I have never seen anyone so convincingly convey suffering from swimmer's ear. It was incredible. You genuinely believe this young woman had a slight pain and redness in her ear. People were close to tears. We cast her on the spot. And you know what? Maybe Clem didn't go on to have the career I thought she would. But people will always remember her as someone who could convince you she had swimmer's ear. Can Jessica Alba say that? No. Which must be difficult for her. It's true that many, many people were shocked at the Academy's decision not to honour Snowflake, and for my part, that wound is healed now. But it's Clem that I really feel sorry for. I mean, yes, she won a Golden Globe, but then so did Paul Hogan, which I think really illustrates their value. Not to denigrate Paul or his outstanding work on Crocodile Dundee, you understand. Call that a knife. But if you give him a ward you can't really expect to retain your credibility, can you? Anyway, the party is over, and Jemima Peaks returns home. And here's a shot of which I am fantastically proud. It was important to establish that Jemima's character is as far away from the cliché of an empty-headed bimbo supermodel as can be. So I set up an elaborate one-take steadicam shot that starts... here. You see, Jemima drops her keys in that antique Byzantine bowl. So we see that she has an appreciation for history and antiques. The camera now flies through her apartment, showing her extensive collection of classical music CDs and medieval tapestries. I don't think she would consider herself a medieval tapestry expert, but it's a hobby for her. Here's a bassoon that she plays in her spare time. On a bedside table is a well-thumbed copy of Joyce's Ulysses. I had to have props well-thumb our copy. It's literally impossible to find a copy of Ulysses that is well-thumbed. We now go through into her study where there are computer components everywhere as she builds her own PC. And although it's never stated, I like to think that she's building that PC for the local orphanage. Then, on a wall, a blackboard with 
some complex equations that she's working on, just for fun. Now recently, the excellent La La Land began with a long single take of a traffic jam, but only managed to establish at the end of it that Emma Stone's character is able to drive a car. Here we have a similar single take that establishes not only is Jemima a top supermodel, but she collects fine art, enjoys theoretical mathematics, builds PCs for orphans, and plays the bassoon. Now I enjoyed La La Land, outstanding picture. But I think the director Damien is still quite young, and his experience showed through here. Perhaps if he had dialed back the singing and dancing a little, he could have more efficiently told us a little more about his lead. I suspect that he hasn't seen Snowflake, and in particular this shot. And when he finally does, he'll be kicking himself. Look there, you see how Clem just winces here and clamps her hand to her ear. That's the first sign of the swimmer's ear nightmare that's about to engulf Jemima's life. Again, Clem was such a professional about this. She wasn't happy just clamping her hand to her ear. She thought people would see that it was an empty gesture, that there was no motivation behind it. She wanted a reason to clamp her hand to her ear. Obviously, we couldn't actually give her swimmer's ear. There were insurance considerations. So we simulated the slight discomfort of the onset of the condition by flicking a frozen pea at her ear, and then Clem's reaction was brilliantly naturalistic. No CGI, no fancy tricks, just a frozen pea and some outstanding ear acting. This visit to the doctor is a key scene. There's some very subtle foreshadowing here, as he tells her to watch and wait, and if it doesn't clear up, to come back and see him. There, as he says it, the light. Just darkens a little. Did you notice? A splash of rain hits the window. A crack of thunder and a shard of lightning. Just subtle, almost subliminal signals that tragedy lies ahead. Ah, now the doctor. What you probably don't know is that the outstanding Russell Crowe very nearly played the doctor. Myself and Russell had become close a few years before. I was making rites of passage, a sort of cross between The Exorcist and American Pie, and he was making a beautiful mind. Now Russell, he doesn't write on blackboards. It's not that he thinks writing on blackboards is beneath him. He just thinks that someone else should do it. So while the stand-in was filming the blackboard scenes in Beautiful Mind, he joined me on the rites of passage set where we'd compare low GI recipes. He made a wonderful sweet potato pie. We became great friends. So when I mentioned I had this new film about a woman with swimmer's ear, he said he wanted to play the doctor. Well, at this point, he didn't even know there was a doctor in it. But that was Russell. He just had this instinct for filmmaking. Well, I said of course, and we agreed he'd cameo as the doctor. Sadly, it didn't work out. Russell was set on the doctor being a foul-mouthed ex-con, prone to bouts of anger and explicit language. It was an incredibly intense performance, blistering and all-consuming. But all the scene needed was a simple swimmer's ear diagnosis. The swearing and smashed furniture simply wasn't working. So sadly, I had to tell my old friend that it wasn't going to work. He punched me in the face, but that's just Russell, outstanding man. Swimmer's ear isn't clearing up, and it's becoming a real problem for Jemima. Her ear is constantly a bit irritating, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to hide the truth from her fellow supermodels. She's on edge. Now, there are two ways that we illustrate this. One through Clem's outstanding performance. Here, an underling brings her some water, but it's slightly chilled rather than Jemima's preferred room temperature. Normally, 
Jemima would just take the underlin aside and explain kindly that water temperature is extremely important to supermodels, and although her job wasn't at risk, she should try and get it right in future. However, this time she hurls the glass of water into a mirror and screams terrifyingly into the face of the hapless girl. Now that's the first way I show she's on edge. The second is the subtle camera technique. You won't consciously notice, but the camera is actually tilted ever so slightly to the left. And psychological studies have shown that things tilted slightly to the left have an unsettling effect on the human brain. This is because whilst gestating, most babies tilt slightly to the right in the womb. So the effect of tilting to the left is alien and disorienting to us. It's just a little example of how psychology and indeed evolution are all part of my filmmaking process. Now we come to the picture's signature moment. It's this scene that tends to linger longest in the minds of most people. Jemima's condition is exposed to the world in the most humiliating way possible. It's the world's most important fashion show. Literally, everyone is watching across the globe, desperate to see what new shirts everyone will be wearing next year. We're in Paris. In fact, we're not. We're actually on a soundstage on a studio backlot. Film the whole thing with a green screen, and then the Arc de Triomphe, Eiffel Tower, and Garlic Market you see in the background were added in digitally. In reality, the tower and the Arc are a mile or so apart, and there isn't actually a Garlic Market in Paris. It's a way we can use special effects in film to improve on the disappointingly mundane reality. So we've got hundreds of people watching in the audience, and literally millions of people watching through a live TV feed all over the world. It's the biggest moment of Jemima's glittering career as a supermodel. Top designer Gerard Rambouchin has made a dress worth one million dollars from diamonds, gold, and the fur of a snow leopard. Now, it's important to be clear here that this dress isn't real. The diamonds were glass, the gold was silver that had been painted gold, and the fur was harmlessly shaved from the backs of local cats. Morally, I believe it's wrong to exploit snow leopards for films. Unless it's absolutely necessary, watch Clem closely here because you can see everything in her face. There, look, there's the mild irritation. Then that becomes panic. Look, you can see it in her eyes. It's just breathtaking work from Clem that really sells the nightmare of swimmer's ear becoming chronic. Stunning work. It's just stunning. She collapses to the floor. That's the balance issues that swimmer's ear can sometimes cause. The camera slowly moves close in on her ear. And that's become a really angry red now, and slowly a mixture of pus and earwax oozes from Jemima's ear and lands on the dress. It's impossible to overstate the devastating effect that something like this would have on the fashion world. I actually researched it. I met with a leading designer and described the scene to her to see how someone immersed in the world of fashion would react. She burst into tears, vomited copiously, and has never spoken to me again. For the fashion world and for Jemima, I think it's fair to say nothing will ever be the same again from now. I am often asked how we got Jemima's ear discharge so tremendously convincing. Well, again, that's testament to Clem's incredible dedication to her role. Apparently, every evening she would collect her own earwax in a small bowl. She then used spit and a little food colouring to give it this pussy appearance. Obviously, I was horrified when she told me, and I made a mental note not to find myself in a room alone with her. But it gave me a real insight into true dedication to a role. Would Meryl Streep collect earwax in a pot? I don't think so. Well, not for a film role, anyway. 
but people do have strange, strange hobbies. I know an actor, actually an Oscar-winning actor, who collects animal feces, dries them out and displays them, has an entire room devoted to his collection. Looking for a lynx sample last time I spoke to him, so if you come across one, bedlam. Jemima's public collapse and ooze, it just causes pandemonium, chaos. I keep the camera low here so I could capture the sense of panic that a pussy discharge from an ear can cause at a fashion show from a quite unusual point of view. And I think it really works. It's unsettling and effective. High heels clattering across the marble floor. Pools of vomit. An intern who's fainted and is being a little trampled. You rarely see panic depicted in films at this low level. In fact, true story. I was playing table tennis with my good friend Ewan McGregor and he confessed that after he'd seen Snowflake he begged the director of his tsunami picture The Impossible to film the scenes of panic at knee height like I had done. Sadly he was ignored and we'll never know if it would have improved it. Still, an outstanding picture even with such conventional panic scenes. As for the table tennis match, well, I let Mac win. You have to really, he can be funny about these things. The reason it took so long to make train spotting too? A falling out after Danny Boyle beat Mac at table tennis. Now, following Jemima's nightmare in Paris, we see her life spiral into a grisly world of despair and prescription drug dependency. It's a tough watch. It's meant to be. Oh my lord, this. This was a gruelling scene for Clem, and for me, for the crew, for everyone. I don't think there was any of us who weren't in tears by the end. This is Jemima in the grip of a paralysing addiction to ear medicine, and we see her at her lowest ebb. Here she comes out of a bathroom stall, clutching what is clearly some illegal ear medicine, followed by a fat, greasy man buttoning his trousers. I didn't want this to be too explicit, but I had to be clear about how bad things had got. She hungrily pours the medicine into her ear. Now... Fact 1. There is a thriving black market in illegal ear medicine. Fact 2. Ear medicine dealers, like all dealers, will cut drugs to maximise profits. Ear medicine is usually cut with laxative. So Jemima takes the medicine, walks out of the grubby restroom and immediately and noisily soils herself. It's a hell of a grim moment, but you can't shy away from the destruction that Swimmer's ear has wreaked upon her life. Narratively speaking, though, the fact that she's hit her lowest ebb means her redemption will be all the greater. So now you, the viewer, is treated to an uplifting testament to the remarkable power of the human spirit. So she's now walking home with the horrible cries of Puss Lady echoing all around her, and she hears a bassoon. It's a lovely moment. You can see here again the quality of light changes, as if... The sun is rising once more on her life. She follows the sound and finds a homeless boy. And he's got nothing at all. No home, no family. Just his bassoon. He sees Jemima. This is a delightful moment. They briefly catch each other's eyes. And like two scared and wary wild voles. Then he runs off. Beautiful. The young boy was outstanding. Walter Mondale. Unfortunate name, but he didn't let it get him down. I think that really sums up Walter. He was a really sunny kid. And that good nature was exactly the quality I needed here. Dedicated too. 
After getting the part, he spent three months learning the bassoon. Three! How many thirteen-year-olds would give up three months to learn the bassoon? We still had to overdub him, though. He had no talent for it whatsoever. Dreadful racket. But the thing is, he had a real enthusiasm for the bassoon that can't be faked. So, yes, we overdubbed him, but it was that enthusiasm that just shone through in his performance and lifted every scene he's in. I'll tell you a story about Walter, and I think this says a lot about the kid. He was never discouraged that we overdubbed him. He just loved the bassoon, and he never gave up trying with it. He tried and tried, and you know what? It paid off. Young Walter Mondale became one of the youngest owners of a bassoon shop on the East Coast. Just shows what you can do if you stick to your dreams. Ah, yes. Now this is a hugely clever moment. You'll remember the earlier one-take Steadicam shot around Jemima's glamorous yet understated apartment. Well, what I do here is repeat it beat for beat to show just how low Jemima has got. The Besantine bowl has been replaced by some Tupperware. The tapestries replaced by posters of rock bands. The equations on the chalkboard are now just swear words and gibberish. The PC is gone, replaced by black market ear medicine. But the bassoon, the bassoon is still there. It's a simple yet very clever shot that illustrates the importance to Jemima's life of her bassoon. Ah, yes. Now this here is just some more outstanding, outstanding work from Clem as Jemima goes through this absolute crisis. The ear medicine junkie part of her psyche just wants to stay in her apartment and take ear medicine strategically close to her own bathroom. But the real Jemima wants to go out and play bassoon with a street kid. All of this is played out wordlessly by Clem. There's a real tension and anguish on her face here as she wrestles with those internal demons. Needless to say, she doesn't succumb, and we have a lovely moment of Jemima running out of her building and down the road as the sun rises ahead of her. A subtle but powerful metaphor. The only thing that I regret about this scene is keeping her in the trousers she soiled after taking those drugs in the car park. Just slightly takes the edge off a beautiful and humane moment. The music here is just glorious. Peculiarly, it's an actually an Icelandic chap called Sigur Ross. Incredible to think they have pop music in Iceland now, and surprisingly good pop music at that. Testament, I think, to a uh, wonderful country, and clearly a very talented people. Good work, Iceland, I say. So it's a powerful moment of catharsis as Jemima runs down the street clutching her bassoon while Mr Ross sings so triumphantly. She meets the boy again, and here you see how they seem to communicate by tentatively each playing a few notes on their bassoon and the other responding. Now this is my homage to Burt Reynolds' classic Deliverance, just with less crude stereotyping of country people in rural America. Interestingly, it was Burt himself who gave me the idea. We were enjoying a picnic together. He makes an outstanding deviled egg, you know, Burt Reynolds. Anyway, I was telling him that I wasn't happy with this particular moment because, well, in an early draft, I had the tentative connection between these two damaged souls being established by Jemima throwing stones at Billy to get him to trust her. It just didn't feel right. Surely having stones thrown at you would make you less likely to trust that person. Bert suggested here that I took inspiration from Deliverance. Well, initially I was confused. I'd eaten 12 deviled eggs and wasn't really thinking straight. 
Could I end my harrowing and intensely personal tale of one woman's fight against swimmers here and have it end with an action-packed metaphor of environmental destruction? It just couldn't work. But actually, of course, what Bert was referring to was Deliverance's outstanding dueling banjo scene. So that's what I did. Except with bassoons instead of banjos, and the bassoon solo from Shostakovich's Symphony No. 9 instead of some improvised bluegrass. Outstanding, but that's Burt Reynolds for you. He knows movies and he knows deviled eggs. This scene is just beautiful. Communicating without words, just through the simple language of the bassoon, and you know how you can see here another discharge coming from Jemima's ear? This was actually Clem's idea. She suggested that if there was another discharge, but uh, Jemima doesn't notice and Billy doesn't care, it would symbolise that perhaps she's finally moved on from the shallowness of her former life as a supermodel. Also, she had some earwax left over in her bowl. I was happy to give her idea a try. It's important to me that I nurture this creative aspect that some actors seem to possess and that they feel free to try things out. Sometimes one of their ideas even works, as Clems did here, and I just think, well, yes, well done. The music really starts to fly now. They've left Shostakovich behind and have moved on to a lovely version of Roberta Flack's Killing Me Softly. You may not be aware, but this was actually released as a single, made it to number 178 in the US charts. Now, Clem, Walter, and the experienced bassoon player who played Walter's part on the record... They thought that number 178 was disappointing. But I say, tell that to someone at 179. I think it's an outstanding achievement. The film's coda, I think, is really rather lovely. Jemima's just walking along with her bassoon. Notice how her clothes are laundered and free of soilage. Just a nice visual way of showing that she's no longer using the black market ear medicine that had so blighted her life. I cleverly show... Here, here, you see, uh, an old supermodel friend sees her and tries to catch her attention, but Jemima either doesn't notice or doesn't care. After the way the fashion world treated her, it's now dead to her. And the film ends with Jemima walking into a small room with a sign-up just saying, Bassoon classes for homeless children. She survived the horror of chronic swimmer's ear and subsequent addiction to black market ear medicine, but perhaps, in many ways it's actually made her a better person. The sort of person who will set up a bassoon school for homeless children. So there we have it. Definitely the most emotionally powerful film I've made. And that even includes my 90s TV movie, The Dog Has AIDS. Maybe the Academy didn't warm to Snowflake, but you know what? Not long after it was released, a man came up to me in the street and he just said, thank you. And as he walked away, I noticed the telltale redness in his ear of a sufferer of a Titus Externa. Powerful stuff, I think you'll agree. Director's Commentary, the Sheridan Monkhouse Collection. An off-target production by Neil Tolfrey.